Hey guys, this week's episode is brought to you by Revel Woods. Picking new hardwood floors can be just overwhelming and frustrating, which is why Revel Woods designed an easy online quiz that shows you only the right woods that will work for your home. See what we mean at revelwoods.com YHL. That's R-E-V-E-L woods.com YHL. I'm John. And I'm Sherry. We like home stuff. We like talking. And we like the occasional game show sound effect. So welcome to Young House Love Has a Podcast, where we have deep and not-so-deep conversations about DIY, design, and life at home. Today, we're diving deeper into cozy minimalism, including the right order to decorate a room and the wrong way to buy accessories. Also, the new tricks we're using to make the duplex tiling less tiring and the thing you should never buy at Target. My body does not like me this morning. The baby chair must be feeling pretty rough right now. (laughs) As long as I stay in one position, I'm pretty good. But after about two straight days of tiling floors, I have some new creaks and, you know, (laughs) tight spots that I'm not used to having. And climbing up the stairs a million times, you guys, the game changer at the duplex, obviously, is it's two sides. So we go like up the stairs to one side and then we go up and over and we carry the tile boxes to the wrong side and then we have to come down and bring them to the right side. I feel like we got a ton of steps in is the positive. The negative is the joints are a little creaky. Yes. So we just got back from a full weekend of starting Thailand at the duplex, which is a very exciting milestone, but also, as I'm realizing this morning, an exhausting milestone. But it doesn't seem as bad as the pink house. No, it doesn't yet. I think the big factor is weather. When we were tiling the pink house, it was in August and the beginning of September. So we were in an unair conditioned house in like 80 to 90 degree weather. And so I basically every day that we worked was fully drenched head to toe by the end from sweat. Sometimes we ended up sleeping over when we didn't plan to, so we'd be in the same sweaty clothes the next day after like yeah. a surprise night at a hotel because we stayed there too late to drive home and it like wouldn't have been safe. And we were like, eh, if we stay here, we can wake up in the morning, do it all over again in the same gross clothes. And I knew the duplex was going to be better or at least have some advantages over the pink house because even though it's twice as much stuff, we have a house to go back to. You know, we have a shower that we can use in the pink house when we're done each day. And because of how the timing worked out and that we're doing it now in October, it's actually much more pleasant out. Like it was about 60 degrees the first day that we did it, which was, I think, the perfect temperature, like a little chilly at the start, but then you warmed up and it just was like sweat free. Yep. And the other thing is we did learn some important lessons from doing the pink house as to how we could be more efficient tiling at the duplex. Right now, we've just started working on floors. So what we have to do is the mudroom on each side and two bathroom floors on each side because the powder room downstairs, the half bath, is just getting wood flooring so it doesn't need tile. So that is six floors total across both sides and that is not including the shower pan and the two shower walls. You know, one of them has a tub so it doesn't have the shower pan at the bottom. So there's still lots to do but right now we just started on floors and we didn't get everything done in this one weekend. We got more done than we expected, but we're going to go back this coming weekend. I guess by the time you hear this, we will be getting back from our second weekend of tiling. So maybe we will be done with the floors by the time you hear this. I hope so, because we're like three and a half floors down, finished, and we have like two and a half more. 
more floors to go and explain the half, John. Take it away. Yeah, we ran out of tile. I guess in one room, we cut it a little bit too close with our calculations as to how much we'd need for overage, and we didn't have any overage. (laughs) Nope. We need like 12 more hex tiles. Yeah, because that overage is just supposed to be buffer for if you make bad cuts or like one of them breaks during shipping. Well, I made some bad cuts. Mm, A few of them broke during shipping. Yep. Mm. So we did not have enough. So I mostly finished that floor, but we have another box on order that is supposed to come in time for this weekend. So hopefully we can finish. So again, by the time you hear this, hopefully we will have it all done. Right. Because we just have the mudroom, one small bathroom, and just to finish that room where we ran out of hex. So that feels very doable when in two days this weekend, we got four, almost four rooms done. Yeah. And I had said we learned some lessons from the pink house as to how to make it more efficient. And one thing we did is that we bought bigger tiles. That may seem like a really obvious thing to do, but you may remember in the pink house, we did that master bathroom floor with the hex, the white hex tile that had kind of like the blue snowflakes or flowers or asterisks, whoever you ask that are different shape. Right. But if you picture a hex tile, it can be a five inch hex tile. It can be a six inch hex tile. This is a one inch, maybe two inches. No, I think think it's it's a one one inch. inch. Think about that, guys. It wasn't square footage. It was square inches that we were doing one at a time because we were plucking black hex tiles out of these white and black sheets. And then we were putting blue ones into them by hand. Yes. So that room took forever and a day. Yes. Like, I'm 100 years old when we finished the room. Oh, well, as much as I like how it looks, I did not want to get into that again. So when we were planning tile for the duplex, we said, let's get larger tile that's faster to place. Because when you have a larger tile, yes, it has some of its own complications, like they're heavier, harder to maneuver sometimes, and making cuts can be a little bit more challenging, especially if you're going around like the toilet flange or whatever. But either way, we were able to cover a large mudroom much faster because each tile was almost like two square feet. Right. And I think there's always accounting for setup. Like we set up on the first day and it felt like we didn't have thin set mixed and weren't laying it down till like noon that day. But I think once we started rolling, we got our momentum up and then, you know, the next Next morning hit the ground running because we kind of knew the process and so that also was helpful along with the bigger tiles I would say go into a big tiling job knowing that the setup will take a while but then you'll start humming along after that's figured out well and also the cleanup takes a while at the end so factor that in totally And for anyone who wants to see photos of the tile, because we are very, very excited about it, I'm going to put some pictures in the show notes. Just go to younghouselove.com slash podcast. You can see all of our hard work, or some of it at least, and you can see where we ran out of tile. But up next, we actually have an interview, and it's one we've been looking forward to for a month now. Yes, I'm so excited. You guys remember I raved in episode 111 about Mike Quillen Smith, one of my friends who sent me her book, and I read it to do the blurb, and then I was obsessed with the book, and it's called Cozy Minimalist Home. It finally comes out this week, you guys, and she has so many good points. So let's just give her a call. Hello? Well, hey guys. Hi, Michael, and it's so good to talk to you. It is so great to get to talk to y'all too. How are you? We're good, and I need to talk about this book, so I'm glad we got you on the horn. Well, I was just saying to Sherry a minute ago that For me, it was really interesting, even just seeing the title of the book, because I always think of minimalism as kind of almost this hoity-toity exclusive club that is almost competitive about how extreme and how little you can own. And so the idea that there might be actually a spectrum to minimalism and that you don't have to be that stark person who owns like one fork. Right. And I think it's people like us that are giving minimalism like the bad rep, really, because I stereotype them for so long. I was like, oh, minimalists are a bachelor who live with a black leather sofa with zero pillows 
no rugs. And that was more my fault, I think, than theirs. Yeah, I totally agree with you because when I go in spaces of people I know and love who are minimalists, I'm like, this is so warm. This is so inviting and welcoming. And it just feels like a breath of fresh air. But I think we all have that sort of vision of like the sofa you stick to and like no textiles and no softness. But like, I don't know if that even really exists in the wild very much. It's so true. And for so long, I was like secretly intrigued with minimalism. But then I was like, but I could never do that. That's not for me. But then I would go read all the blogs and, you know, follow them on Instagram and just secretly wish I could have less stuff in my house, but then felt like, oh, there's no way I can do that because I love pretty things. Well, was there a particular moment or maybe issue at your home that made you realize you could merge these two ideas, this idea of coziness and this idea of being minimal? Yeah, I was kind of forced to because we moved from a big house to a little fixer upper. And we were doing so much work like dusty work and walls and stuff that I didn't want to bring a bunch of pretty cute things into my house for the first couple months. So we kind of packed that away. And we just lived on our first floor with very few things. And I liked it. And it surprised me because even though I mean, we were going under like a kitchen renovation, you guys know how stressful that is, it makes you want to die sometimes. But it was really a peaceful place to come home to. And I think it was just because I didn't have a bunch of cute little things on every single surface of my house. So we still had this relaxing family room to come home to even though our kitchen was a mess. And that is what sold me to kind of investigate this idea a little bit more. Well, there's probably some total sidebar here to people who are about to renovate to maybe think about instead of offsetting every single decorative object from the room you're about to renovate into another room, maybe part of the lesson is like if you box it up and put it away, then when it comes back out, it's much easier to see with fresh eyes what you actually love and what is clutter Because when you offset it and just create a different room full of clutter, it's really hard for your eyes to adjust when you put it back in the kitchen. Like, it's not going to look as crazy as the cluttered room before, so you might think it looks good, but it might actually be really cluttered. Your eye is just used to, like, chaos. It's so true. There's a couple things there. Like, number one is, say you're renovating and you want to have, like, this one space that's peaceful. Well, if you just have it completely blank, then... All you're going to think about is, I can't wait to get my stuff back. But if you allow yourself to still have a couple decorative items, you still want to have a lamp. Obviously, that's not just decorative, but still keep something on your mantle. Still keep a few pillows around. And then when it's time to add things back, you kind of fall in love and get adjusted to seeing just a couple things out. And there is something that happens that you don't want to wreck it up and add too many more things. So that's what happened in my experience. I think that kind of happened with you too, Sherry. But you almost have to give yourself a couple days or like a little bit of time to adjust to seeing less in your home. Well, it's almost that idea that some people say when they're feeling stuck in their house or that they they can't figure out what to do right. They're like, I just want to burn it down and start over. (laughs) Like this is that, but without actually lighting a match. Exactly. A lot of times, you know, if you do like the uh, life changing magic of tidying up, you have to hold each item and decide if you your emotions, which I'm not an emotional. So I don't know what to keep or not. But if I get my room looking right, I do know that I don't want to junk it up. And so it kind of tricks myself into being like, oh, well, I can get rid of that because I don't want to mess up my cute room. And you say something interesting in the book that struck me is that you say cozy is not a style. It's a tool. Could you explain what you mean by that to everyone? Well, for a long, long time, I thought cozy was my style. Like I need lots of layers and lots of, you know, story goodness. And I want my home to be warm and inviting, which I think we all want. And so the way I would do that is I would add more stuff. 
but then it still didn't look quite right. Coziness, if we think of it as a tool, so coziness is like those extra things that we add in our home that serve the people. So if you think about if you have a guest room and you need to cozy it up, you want pillows for people to lay their head on. You want a cushy rug for when they get out of bed so their bare feet touch the floor. You probably want privacy drapes on the windows. But when coziness has a purpose and it's a tool you have a stopping point and that was the thing I never had like I was always like oh I can add another cute pillow on my sofa and another and another and another and another and so I would have like this 20 pillows on my sofa or 30 pillows on my bed or just craziness because I never had a stopping point because I just thought oh if I want it to look better that must mean I need to add more but that wasn't necessarily the point cozy and minimalism if they are tools we say, well, we need coziness to make people feel warm and comfortable and inviting, but we also need some minimalism or some empty space or some margin in our home or cleared off spaces because those are places where life can happen, where we can do the puzzle or homework or, you know, drop the mail, whatever it is. I was not allowing that extra white space in my life. Yeah, I totally remember this phase of my life where We started the blog, we were in our first home, and we'd go to Target, and every time we went to Target, I would go down the decorative aisle, and I would get like a lamp or a decorative box or a basket, and it served me because in my first home, as a first-time homeowner, I didn't have a lot of things, and so it was nice to get a lamp. I'd need a lamp. I'd have an empty bedroom without a lamp, and it would fill a void that was necessary to me, but I got in this habit of go to the decorative aisle at Target, and I remember in our second home, so this is like five plus years into having a home and getting decorative things all the time, I was struck by this realization of like, I don't have the same voids I had when I was a first time homeowner. I don't need to always buy a decor item every time I go to Target because I have decor items in a cabinet at home that I'm not even using because I have too many decor items. And it was this like moment of reckoning where I was like, but I like the routine and it feels like treating yourself and it feels like I deserve it. I worked hard and and I have the budget for it. So why shouldn't I? be able to buy this little decorative box that's $7.99. But I realized it was like almost watering down the things I loved most to keep adding like another basket to my collection of 100 baskets. It was not like increasing my joy at home. It was more making me have to manage everything. And when I was reading in the book, you called yourself a stuff manager. I flashed back to that moment in my life because I didn't have a term for it. But I remember thinking, I don't want to manage all this stuff and have to like find places to store it and have to like remember to switch it out or I feel like I'm not getting the value of all the items I bought because I literally would have to rotate them to look at all of them. And that is a job that I didn't want to have. It's so true. I think you and I and probably a lot of people listening to this, we have this blessing of being able to see potential in things and finding beautiful things and probably even a lot of times finding things for a great deal that we know like, oh, this would look so good in our house, or I have a creative way to use this. And we get in that habit and we're good at it. We make it look good. We enjoy it. It serves our family, but we forget to remove stuff or we continue, continue, continue. And you're right. Like it becomes a part-time job that we never really wanted to do in the first place. And we end up with this beautiful collection. It's like we have a beautiful, adorable horde of stuff. Although you would never really call it that because we're usually organized and we have it packed away nice and it's such cute stuff. But when you step back and evaluate, it's taking up a lot of time and space in our lives. It's funny because as I was listening to Sherry say that, and you say that, Michael, and I was flashing to how we can see this in other 
items with other people. Like we have a family member who loves to find clothing items on sale. And she's like, I got these pants in the dollar spot or whatever. (laughs) And we're like, but you don't need them. So you just wasted a dollar. It's like easy to see in others, but hard to see in yourself, especially when you think you're doing this like wonderful bargain hunting job of finding a deal. And I I always say I'm a rescuer. Like I want to save all the thrifted things that are like tired and worn and just need a fresh coat of paint or just need to be restained because like you said, I see the potential. But then I realize if I don't have a spot for it or a use for it or like a plan for it, it becomes the stuff I begin to manage. And that's how the attic gets full of stuff. And then what do I do? I yard sale that stuff. So it's such a bad cycle. It is. And if you look at your room and remember that everything in your room has a voice and every surface has 10 or 15 things on it, it's almost like your room is yelling at you. If you can get used to enjoying the couple voices, like I think I forget who some smart person said when everything is important, nothing is important. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, someone said actually, after we shared the shout out to your book, they said like, I love this cozy minimalism. I love the idea of it, but I have so much art. I have so much art that I love that I have art in storage that I love. What should I do? And I thought about it and I was like, I'm trying a new thing with art because I actually had been doing it already. I was paring down a wall around our TV in our living room and I was confronted with what to do with the art that comes down if I love it. And so my approach was, if you love it, it should stay. So I don't think if your house is full of art you love, there is no problem there. You are happy. Your house is full of art you love. You are appreciating it. But what I noticed is I had a lot of art that was just holding space or it was there to fill space or it was a frame I got and I loved the frame but the only print I had that size of the frame went in but I don't really care about the print and so I said the way that I'm approaching art is I'm looking at each piece individually and if I love it it stays and if I'm meh about it I take it down and then I give myself the opportunity to redistribute the art I love because I do believe when we're putting art we love among all this meh placeholder art it waters it down and when we let the art that we love be alone on a wall it's sort of shining a spotlight on it and appreciating it and we can see it in a way that we couldn't see it when it was like buried in a whole collage of other art that was space filler art. Yes, that is the perfect way to handle art. So it's sad to put stuff in storage and not be even if it's like in your attic or wherever, because this stuff is meant to be enjoyed. And if we can't enjoy it, let's give it to someone who can. Well, and the cool thing I think about your book, Michael, and is that there is an amount of sort of theory and philosophy to how these things merge together. But there's also a process like steps that you can take. And you actually show us how you took them in your own house. And so like Sherry talked about previously how we did the first step and quieted the room. But I thought maybe you could describe for us what happens after that. Okay, so you're going to quiet your room, which means you're going to get out all of those extra things. So all your tchotchkes, your lamps, roll up your rugs if you can. Like I, The more you can quiet it, the better. So if you can get your drapes down, if you can get a couple small tables out, the goal is to be able to see the room you're working on. We always work one room at a time to see that room with fresh eyes. And so, of course, you can leave your sofa in or your TV, things like that that you need because you're going to probably be using this room as you work through it. But you want to set the stage to be able to kind of see it like you saw it when you first moved in. And taking all of those beautiful distractions out is the first step. And then you're going to live with it like that for a couple days. And so that just kind of helps you reset your brain and what you're looking at. And you pay attention to how you use the room and not how like the builder said the room should be used or how you've used it for the past 
five years. So it's a lot of thinking and paying attention and easy steps. It's not like step one, go to the furniture store and buy all new things. Like, no, 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 no. This is not about that at all. And then the next step is just to get your furniture in the best place for your family. And you just have to move it around and try it out. It's really, it's fun, easy step, but something I think a lot of us haven't done. We move in, we put the TV wherever the people before us had the cable run. We put the sofa across from it. We hang some art and we sit down and watch a movie. <laughs> well, and then you get into this idea of, I like this term, the decorating trinity. Yes. Which is so smart and you're so right. So why don't you tell people what those three things are? Well, I say if someone said, hey, we need you to help someone with their house tomorrow and you can't see the room before you go, but we want you to go like to Home Goods and buy some things to take. The things I would always get if I could only get three things is number one, I would get a huge rug. We are all buying our rugs way too small, me included. It's terrifying to buy the correct size rug because they're big and they're an investment and they're hard to get in the car. But we do ourselves a disservice by getting a tiny little rug or even an eight by five is usually too small for any room. We want those front feet at least of our furniture on the rug. But I totally understand how scary that can be. So number one, I always would bring a rug. Number two, I would get drapes, which you can get off the rack, even like Ikea drapes that are going to be 96 or 108 inches long. You do not want to go to Target and get the 84 inch drapes. They are doing our windows zero favors. Amen. I don't know why they sell them. I don't understand it. We all have eight foot ceilings or higher. What is an 84 inch curtain doing for anyone? Thank you. Let's start. What is it that Pete, like a petition? Can we start a petition? For real. <laughs> Even when we were back designing for Target and we were doing hardware, I was like, listen, get me in touch with the person who does your draperies because I have some feelings. <laughs> Clearly it didn't work. Clearly we don't have a drape line, so nothing happened with that. <laughs> we have to stop buying them, people. 84s, no, they will not work. We need at least 96, depending on how high your ceilings are. And so if your drapes are hung correctly, that is going to solve so many problems and bring a lot of softness and coziness to a room. And it's just drapes. So you're not like adding 10 tchotchkes on a surface. So when you go through it the right way, the right steps at the right time, you know, also hanging drapes on your wall correctly changes the empty space on your wall because you're going to take up some wall space when your drapes are hung correctly. And a lot of us just hang them right in front of the windows. But when they're hung right, you have less wall space to need to fill with art. So you never, ever, ever want to start your art until your drapes are hung because we, that's what we all do. Like we have this beautiful piece of art and we hang it too soon. And then it makes us center furniture under it or center, you know, our sofa under it. No, no, no. We never hang our art until other things are done. And so especially until our drapes are hung correctly, until our furniture is in the right place. And even until you have your lamps, which is the third part of this homey trinity, let's call it, um, is getting those lamps on your sideboard, on your dresser, on your table, whatever it is, every room pretty much is going to need that filtered, beautiful light. And then that also can affect the type and shape of wall space you need to fill because your lamp will sit in front of a wall and take up some of that space. Absolutely. And you don't know if you're going to get a glass-based lamp or a really chunky dark lamp with lots of contrast. So I completely agree with you. It's like we need to figure out the big things that make the room cozy before we're in the minutia of like, 
I'm going to put the box here and I'm going to lean this up on the mantle. And what about a vase of flowers here? It's like cart is before the horse. Yes. I mean, first of all, pretty much any of us can pick out a lamp that we like. It's just doing it in the right order and putting them in the right place. That's what makes all the difference. And that's where I hope to help people with this book is just like, you're already good at finding things that you like and all of that. But let's put them in the room in the right order so you can finish your room off in a way that doesn't look strange to you. Right. Yeah. I really love this book just for the formula of it. Like I used to think there are many ways to start in a room and the rug could be the jumping off point and the art could be the jumping off point. But now I realize that's true for the palette. But there is certainly an organized way to put a room together in the order that things go into the room. And so that's what I love that you kind of thought it through already so someone can just follow the framework. Yes. And I thought it through because we are in our 14th home. And so I had to figure it out (laughs) because we kept moving. And I wanted to figure out why some rooms ended up looking good and some rooms looked kind of weird. Well, and also one of my favorite moments in the book was actually at the end in the appendix, because you have these great photos that illustrate your living room before and after you went through the process in your own space. And one of the coolest ones I thought was the accessories. You just corral all the accessories that were in your room before, and then what is in it after you went through the process. And it was so eye-opening to see the difference between those two. Yes. Well, I admit, I never met a tchotchke I didn't like, or a pillow, or a cute little frame, or a tiny basket. But I was relying on a million tiny things that kind of got lost and looked like they were on parade instead of a couple really large things with a bigger voice and a bigger statement that allowed me to still get a super cozy style with using less stuff. So if you like counted the things in the photo before, there were like 45 little tiny things that are like see-through. And then compared to the after, I used like larger, more impactful, like solid items that actually had presence and it made such a difference. I loved that photo as well. I think all the photos in the book are really helpful. Like you hung curtains the wrong way and then showed people how to hang them the right way. Like the visuals in the book are so awesome. I do have a question that I think is hard. It's one I got yesterday from someone who was saying, I love the idea of cozy minimalism, but when I look at all the stuff and I'm trying to evaluate it, I think, oh, I either need this because I use it or it's meaningful Or my friends and family gave me these decorative objects and I might not love them, but I feel like I have to keep those. So I'm kind of stuck. Like I've tried to minimize, but I'm not there yet. And I feel like I can't get there. What would you say to someone who's holding on to things maybe out of obligation or they feel like they honestly need everything, all the stuff everywhere? I think a great place to start is just to have the goal for every room to have one cleared off surface. Like instead of being like, okay, I'm going to get rid of stuff. No, 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 no. If you just need to start slow so you can kind of appreciate the idea of less in every room, just pick one surface, probably the surface that you use the most. So maybe in your family room, that's the coffee table or in the kitchen, that's the island. And for a couple days, don't put anything decorative on it. It doesn't mean you can't use it. Like, no, that's exactly what it's for. It's to be used. But then when you're done cooking dinner or doing the puzzle or the bills or whatever, you clean it off so it's empty. And that kind of gets you in the mindset of appreciating empty surfaces. I love that idea. Just like an easy place to start. It is an easy place to start. 
Do you want me to talk about the hand-me-down, like if people give you gifts? Yes. I think it's really tough for people when they get things from family members who love them, but they might not necessarily love the things. The person who was talking to me said it was like a home is where the heart is needlepoint or something that they like loathe, but they feel awkward getting rid of things given out of love by someone they love. We received something for our wedding, which we deemed the wedding Oscar, (laughs) which was like a statuette of people embracing. It was like white (laughs) and very abstract. It really looked like an Oscar when you held it up. The shape of it was very Oscar-like, but it was like two people in love wrapping their arms around each other and we literally kept that thing for like two years out of obligation well or just out of amusement (laughs) but then i think we were like oh darn it broke well i think that's a good way to handle it it's like to give it a spot and slowly move it out of the limelight over time i have no problems if someone gives me something and i'm not crazy about it to not display it like if someone gave me a shirt i didn't like i wouldn't wear it why am i displaying something in my home if i don't like it but i understand there are nuances there but i think we can slowly work things out of the main room into the guest room and into, you know, the office then into the attic and then into the goodwill. So that's another approach. But I will say, I think a lot of times people have problems with like, oh, my, my parents moved and they didn't like the sofa. So they gave it to us. And now I want a new sofa, but I feel bad getting rid of it. When that's the case, I say, if they didn't want it and they were okay not having it in their house, you have zero responsibility to keep a hand-me-down in your house that someone else couldn't use or didn't need. You can always ask them if they want it back. And if not, tell them you're going to get rid of it. Well, thank you so much for talking us through this more, Michael. And you know that we are very invested in this process and this book. Well, thanks so much for having me. I loved getting to hang out with you guys. Oh, we'll talk to you later, Michael. All right. Bye. 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 So again, Michaelin's book, Cozy Minimalist Home, comes out this week. So if you haven't snagged it, we will put a link in the show notes at younghouselove.com slash podcast so you can get a copy. You can read my blurb. Yes. I think you're the first blurb. You got top billing. Top blurb billing. <laughs> put it on your resume. Okay. <laughs> but next up, we're going to get into our digging. In a plot twist, Sherry is digging something about Fall Guys. Ah, that's a stretch. I think she's seeing the light. I wouldn't go that far. But first, we're going to take a quick break. I'm sure some of you out there know that your home could use some new hardwood floors, but we know firsthand that the process is a little bit overwhelming. And that's why this week's sponsor, Revel Woods, is so interesting because they are aiming to make that process easier. Right. They have this quiz on their website that helps you narrow down exactly the right types of woods that will work best in your area, you know, with your house, with your climate. Yeah, if you've got things like concrete floors that they're going over or radiant heating, they take all that into account and only show you the hardwoods that will work in your space. Right. And then you can pick some samples, get them sent to your house, and then you can be confident with your choice. And one of my favorite things is once you actually have purchased your hardwoods, before the hardwoods arrive, they send you a welcome kit. So it has all the instructions for getting them installed. It has like a cleaning and care kit. And even, because I love nerdy tools, a hygrometer. Which helps you grow corn. No, it helps you measure the moisture levels in your home so you make sure that it's right for the wood before you install. So check it out at revelwoods.com slash YHL. That's R-E-V-E-L woods.com slash YHL. And before you order your sample pack, enter the code YHL10 to get $10 off. That makes a sample pack only $5. That's YHL10 at revelwoods.com slash YHL. Okay, guys, I know John promised you that I'm digging something fall-related. It is fall-related, but it is to make fall less annoying to me. It is softening the blow of fall to me. Hey, you're just finding the silver lining in this season. (laughs) That's progress. Okay, so this week I'm digging... 
new nail polish colors that are very folly. They allow me to fit in knowing that it's fall. I'm not wearing like bright pink toes, but they also give me space to grieve summer. Oh, it's, these are morning colors? They're fine. They're very fallish. They're not a pumpkin color because I couldn't even go there with those smug little pumpkins. Those little jerks just look at me all day, grinning with their toothy smiles. Little to share, you know, pumpkin pie is like the best pie. I know, pumpkin pie is good. Sweet potato pie also. And also, guys, I got this question because I've been wearing one of them and everyone kept asking me what it is. And I love it. It's basically like a glittery, shiny penny color, like a copper. It's perfect for the fall. Even if you're fall resistant, it's nice. I love it. And it's called Worth a Pretty Penny, P-E-N-N-E. Like almost like penne, but it's not the color of a penne. It's the color of a penny. Oh, okay. So I have a qualm with the name, but I love the color. And it's by OPI. And I got some questions from people who are like, wait, I thought you love Butter London. I thought you only did the natural things. OPI reformulated and they took out the doodly toodlies and all the bad things. <laughs> it's a technical term. The doodly toodlies are very bad for you. Hold on. I took a picture of the ingredients that they removed because I knew I'd have to quote it. There's dibutyl phthalate, DBPs, also known as doodly toodlies. <laughs> they removed those. It's an endocrine disruptor. You don't want to mess with that. They also don't contain formaldehyde or tooling. <laughs> Why are you laughing so hard? Make your doodly a little toodly. <laughs> Generally, guys, they took all the really gross stuff out, formaldehyde, tulene, and DBP, which are all bad and give it really bad ratings on like purity sites. You sound like a scientist. I'm a scientist. So now I like OPI because it lasts a long time and it doesn't have the doodly doodly. <laughs> I feel like we need to take a break to recover. I'll just paint my nails and calm down. No, so the first color I love is that one worth a pretty penne, and it's like very, very shiny copper color. And I'm also really digging the like grays and purples and almost like a mauve with a sheen because they feel very fallish. And their names are Chicago Champagne Toast is kind of the mauve one. Um, I also grabbed Berlin There Done That, which is like a medium gray color. And then there's like a gray purple that's deep called You Don't Know Jacques, which always makes me think of Housewives. Luann, remember she did a Jacques, you guys? Come on, go down that road with me. But anyway, I love these four. I'll put them in the show notes because I know your brain won't hold on to them. And they just wear a really long time. They're all pretty fall colors. You will see my nails in Insta stories. They will be these four colors for the next four months because I think they will even carry me into winter because the gray and the purpley gray feel very winter. And even the mauve could be like a Christmassy, like faded red. So I am a fan of OPI now that they don't have the gross things and just do a top coat over them and they last at least like eight days. It's good nail polish. This week I'm digging an Instagram account. And you know, I love these like kind of satisfying videos on Instagram, like I once dug slime videos. I've sort of progressed beyond that to some true artistry. And this is one person named Becca Clayson, Clason, it's C-L-A-S-O-N, I don't know how it's said. But she is a lettering artist, so like she does, you know, lots of pretty lettering and fonts and word art, but not with a pen. She does it with objects like food and spices and other kind of found objects. Like she made this whole very beautiful phrase out of black beans. And you look at it and you can't believe from a distance that it's made out of these found objects or these food items because it's so pretty and like the lettering is so nice and even. And she does them for random things. Like she did a cover for Country Living Magazine, I think over the summer out of watermelon. 
Yeah, that's so cool. And so the cool thing about her account is not only does she share the final product, but she shows a lot of the process and like time lapse of creating them. It's actually kind of similar to an account I dug a long time ago with someone who does found object art. So I'll link that one as well in the show notes. So if you go to younghouselove.com slash podcast, I'll link to both of these accounts. What I love about her is that she shows the behind the scenes of how she makes things and what she makes. You never think about, oh, someone made that. Like she made a gift card for Publix. And I was like, that's a job. People design the gift cards for Publix. Like I'm in advertising. I should think about that. But I think about websites and print ads. But like right down to the gift card, some artist or a cover of a magazine is creating them when they're not photos. And so it's so interesting for them to be like objects manipulated by color or by pattern. Yeah, I mean, you think a lot of those things, like this is a cover she did for Texas Heritage Magazine. I don't know that magazine, but it says a regional guide to Texas barbecue and it's written out of barbecue sauce. When you put barbecue sauce on, it's like (laughs) (laughs) art. (laughs) Doodly toodly. Thanks for listening to Young House Love Has a Podcast. And if you guys know anyone who'd enjoy our talk with Mike Lynn today, please share this episode with them. There's lots of sharing options built right into your podcast app, but we also like the old school method too. Next time you see them, ask to borrow their phone, show them how to download it. It's exactly how I got my dad listening to one of my favorite podcasts. And keep telling us what you do while you listen, like Primstrong on Instagram who listened while crossing into Virginia as she hikes the Appalachian Trail. Wow, now that is a Walktober, Sherry. Woohoo! And thank you everyone doing Walktober. Also, check out the show notes at younghouselove.com slash podcast for all the bonus links, photos, and info from this episode. Like all the nail polish colors I'm digging. And a look at the tile progress of the duplex. Yes, you guys, there's this hexy marble looking stuff. It's not really marble. It's gorgeous. Look at the pictures because I'm obsessed with it. Later. Bye. Top blur billing. <laughs> Put it on your resume, okay. <laughs> but at... Beep, but at... Uh, <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> Yabba dabba doo. <laughs> <laughs>